Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It began, as so many other things, with a letter, or perhaps the letter as it's now referred to, the Harper's Letter, the so-called Letter on Justice and Open Debate, which was published earlier this week, and which has elicited an enormous row, in my view, a kind of family row, on the left or within liberalism between so-called moderate and radical leftists or between those people who believe in what we might think of as progressive identity politics and those that don't. Um, We've had Yasha Munk on the show uh, talking in defense, I guess, of traditional liberalism or what he means by traditional liberalism. Uh, we've also had Brett Stevens, a conservative liberal, although some people might not think of him as a liberal, uh, articulating his vision of this brouhaha. And I think it's appropriate also to have a, a critic of, of the letter on the show. Um, Osita Waneva is uh, a writer on The New Republic, and he's the author of a really, really good provocative piece in response to the letter called The Willful Blindness of Reactionary Liberalism. Uh, I think Osita uh, has really nailed a lot of the issues and problems with the Harper's letter. Osita, uh, to kick off this discussion, shall we try to define what liberalism means? Sure thing, and thanks again for having me on. Um, I actually don't think I would disagree too much with either Stevens or Monk um, in defining what philosophical liberalism fundamentally is. I think that we would all identify a philosophical tradition that is centered on or that really emphasizes the rights of the individual um, and the dignity of the individual and is really skeptical about the state um, imposing its rights on, or imposing, infringing on people's rights to express themselves, to live as they want, and so on. Uh, The thing that I emphasize in my piece, and the thing that I think people should understand when they're interpreting some of these cultural debates, is that one of the rights that people have in liberalism is the right to engage, join with other people, in defense of a particular set of values, in defense of a particular intellectual mission. Uh, we see this, I think, at all kinds of publications. New Republic is one example. You have conservative magazines, um, newspapers, even though they, you know, often present this image or they present themselves as being arbiters of um, the truth from a neutral perspective. Um, that in itself is a kind of values-based mission. And you have these internal conflicts at publications uh, trying to suss out what it actually means to fulfill that mission. Uh, universities uh, are in the same way. So I, I think it's important for people to understand some of the cultural conflicts we've had um, from the point of view that if a 
group or an institution does something, if they make a decision that seems to be politically correct or identity political in a way that is controversial, that does not necessarily mean that they're acting in a way that is contrary to liberal values. I think that liberalism creates space for institutions to do all kinds of things that people might disagree with and that the conflicts that emerge from those decisions uh, are totally fine and, and in fact, uh, part of what liberalism is designed to facilitate. Yeah, the, the whole thing kind of reminds me of a, of a family row. Um, in the Harper's letter, uh, there's all this stuff about free society, but nothing honest. It's not a very honest letter in the sense that they don't refer to what you call at least progressive identity politics. There are other ways of describing it. And it kind of reminds me of a, of a family row in the sense that people are arguing, but not actually, they all know the narrative, they all know the argument, but no one's actually saying anything out loud. Do you think the Harper's letter uh, is dishonest? Or was I, dishonest? I don't know that I, I would say it's dishonest. I think it is um, an effort at misdirection. So the economist Tyler Cohen, um, who I guess is a libertarian and, and disagrees with me, I think probably on, on most identity political issues, wrote a critique of the letter that I actually found pretty instructive and, and meaningful. He said basically that what is in question in these controversies um, is not so much whether people should be able to restrict or exclude particular viewpoints. Implicitly, we all accept that there are certain things that are beyond the pale. Uh, what we're actually having is debate about what should or should not merit inclusion and uh, investigation. And from his perspective, he believes that the views espoused by people who um, are supporters of progressive identity politics those should be considered suspect, and they, those people should not have the right to determine what is or isn't a legitimate point of view at the New York Times or at a university. And he sees that conflict is what this is fundamentally about. And I think I, I basically agree. It's not so much that people um, are defending uh, the right to free expression in that letter um, more than anybody else. It, it, it's the people who wrote that letter and are defending it, are concerned about having a particular set of viewpoints um, excluded from conversation. And there are people on the other side who say, well, it's time that we, as a culture, as a society, move on and, and reject certain things uh, that they don't, uh, they don't believe um, are, are really up for debate anymore. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, 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 you describe the Harper camp as reactionary liberals. I think Tau, uh, Tyler Cowen is suggesting not so much reactionary as tired. The, <laughs> these liberals who, who signed the Harper's letter and perhaps Yasha himself, these are yesterday's liberals. Is that a fair way of putting it? I think so. I mean, I think they're yesterday's liberals um, on particular questions. So I think one of the big ones and, and one of the ones that uh, people latched onto um, who were critical of the letter was transgender issues. There are a lot of people who signed on, I guess were involved in the Harper's letter who have been critical um, of tra transgender identity claims. Uh, another one is race and the importance of racism or white supremacy 
uh, in understanding our politics in American society today? There, these are questions uh, in which I think the people who signed on to the letter and the broader tendency I identify in my piece um, are out of step with younger people. Um, and frankly, I think out of step with where American politics seems to be going. Yeah, I, I I think you're right, and I, I thought one of the uh, one of the wonderful phrases in in your piece was that the ladder of American meritocracy you described as a um, a busted drainpipe, uh, very uh, very dramatic kind of metaphor there, the busted drainpipe of American meritocracy, and your point I think, and the point of people perhaps critical of the of the Harper camp. Um, is that American liberalism, so to speak, hasn't delivered. Um, and that's really, when you pare away all this stuff about race and sexual identity, that's really what this debate is about. The future of American liberalism or the future of the American left. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And it's, it's, a, um, it's a debate about how we should in, even interpret um, problems that I think everybody would recognize. So it's not so much that people um, who I describe as reactionary liberals, liberals would say that uh, racism or the influence of racism um, has disappeared from American society and we should all kind of move on. I get some of that, but I think that more intelligent people will acknowledge that there are certain problems. But I think that one of the big conflicts is how we should, how we should kind of um, understand the way people should respond to the problem? Is it a question of people individually saying to themselves, well, I might face this racist situation at work or um, elsewhere in the economy, but if I sort of apply myself and get an education and do all the right things, I can overcome that hurdle. There are people who believe that, and then there are people who think, well, actually, the extent of the structural disadvantage we see in our society, in our economy, the weight of history means that you cannot actually tell individual people that overcoming these challenges is just a matter of their own grit and determination. We have to have a broader structural understanding of where racism came from, the ways it's influenced uh, American society throughout history, and sort of have this kind of broad, uh, more ambitious kind of policy understanding of what we need to do. I think that's, that's, that's one of the key divides here. Um, from my perspective, I think that the implications of American history uh, suggest that we need, I think, a lot of universal programs and targeted programs to specifically to address racial inequity. Um, but the scope of what I would support in many ways, as I think, uh, the opposite of the scope of what somebody like Andrew Sullivan would support. And he, as I mentioned in my piece, um, is very into this idea of as bad as racism might be, there's a level of individual agency out here that hasn't been tried yet as, as a way of overcoming it. You also, there's a philosophical element to your piece. You introduce the concept of what you call associative freedom, which you juxtapose with individual freedom. Asito, what is associative freedom and why is it important in this debate in your mind? Well, associative freedom is basically the freedom that individuals have to come together uh, for a common purpose. That can be an advocacy group, that can be starting a publication. Um, 
any kind of voluntary association we have in society um, is made possible by the freedom that people have to come together um, to achieve some mission or some goal. And I think that understanding that freedom is important because some of the debates that we've had, I think one of the big ones is this debate over Tom Cotton's op-ed in New York Times. Uh, he wrote a piece saying that uh, the government should step in with the military to quell um, unruly protests back at the peak of, of the George Floyd unrest. Um, and staffers at the time said this wasn't a good piece to run, that it endangered the safety of black people and so on. Um, I think, to me, the, the proper way to understand that conflict is not as a free speech conflict. Uh, Cotton has free speech, obviously. Um, but that speech doesn't necessarily mean that he has a right to be published by the New York Times or by any particular publication. Instead, people at the New York Times have the freedom to say, well, according to a particular set of values, we do or don't think that this particular piece fits our standard and should be run. Um, and what you eventually essentially had in that situation was staffers at the time saying, look, we, we think that our values as an institution say that we should reject this piece. We should edit it or we should have amended it in some way before it ran. I think that was perfectly fine and something that is possible for an institution or a group of people within an institution in liberal society to do. But the reaction that we got um, in that controversy was people saying, well, this is a speech conflict and people saying that Cotton shouldn't have been published or people who are infringing upon his right to free speech or would have been happy infringing upon his right to free speech. I think instead that what was actually in question there was what are the values that Times as an institution um, exists to uphold? And, you know, I think that that's a, a legitimate debate that we had both internally within that paper and externally. But it's ultimately a question um, defined by the freedom that people at the Times have to define what their organization is about. I think your argument about yesterday's liberals is a strong one, and uh, I actually agree with your colleague at the New Republic, Alex Shepard, who argues that persuasion and Yasha's organization and uh, the Harper's people are a club of, of no longer coddled elites. I'm less uh, certain, though, of the critic coming at, not so much you, but of progressive identity politics from the left, uh, you you mentioned Matt Taibbi in in your piece. What do you make of 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 Taibbi's critique of progressive identity politics in the sense that it's just a lot of words and meanwhile inequality and injustice uh, becomes ever more entrenched in American society? Well, I think there are two parts. Um to my critique of his critique that I think are important. One of them relates to this question of associative freedom. So democratic socialism, which is the dominant, I think, uh, tendency of people on, on the hard left of American politics today, is a philosophy in which workers would eventually be given the freedom to, at their own workplaces, um, decide on what working conditions best suited them, what practices best suited them, how they wanted to conduct business. So it was very odd from that understanding of where the American left is um, to read in his piece what was essentially a castigation of workers, journalists at the Times and other newspapers 
saying, well, we think things should be run differently and we have a particular set of identity political values that we want to uphold. Um, those to me should be seen in part as labor actions, as people at those publications saying to management, we think things have been done in a certain way that ought to change. Um, and the left should uphold the rights of workers to, to make those kinds of claims, even if they don't necessarily agree with the content of those claims, if that makes sense. There's, there's, there's an element of what we've seen happen that is about worker power and the ability workers have to challenge management. That's one thing. The other part um, that I think is important is that I think you're correct in saying that there's an anxiety uh, with Taibbi and other people on the left that identity politics ultimately amounts to a lot of buzzwords that come flowing down from academia that don't have any real relation to people's lived experience. It doesn't have any real relation to uh, the material challenges that people face in their lives. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, there's, you know, you can get dense and unpenetrable prose from academia to be sure, but what people are fundamentally talking about is material inequity. Uh, people are talking about, uh, in the George Floyd protests, the fact that the police in certain communities in this country have been wildly abusive and we ought to do something to change that. And that understanding we should do something to change that comes from a kind of structural understanding of racism and white supremacy and American history um, that has been facilitated by academia. You had a lot of progressive philosophers and analysts saying, look, we should understand American society um, in a way that centers the role race has played in oppressing certain populations. Um, and the other anxiety that I think that people like him have is that uh, we saw in the middle of the George Floyd protests, a lot of corporations putting out statements saying that we support the protests and we think the policing should be rethought. Um, things that were nominally supportive of Black Lives Matter. But the people like Taibbi said, aha, this means that all this movement really is, is a kind of front for corporate America to elevate its standing with the public. It's a thing that allows people to look past um, kind of rapacious actions, <laughs> the big banks and other corporations that were supportive uh, have actually taken in many cases to you know, actively hurt the black community. Um, but I think people are smart. I think that people recognize corporate PR as PR and nobody's going to be satisfied by statements uh, alone. I think that people do on the left want to see real change. And I don't know that we should be more skeptical of identity politics because corporations are trying to buy into it. And we should be skeptical of populism or class politics because people at Davos now talk about wealth inequality because Donald Trump, uh, who passed $1.5 trillion tax cut, um, uh, ran on talking about how uh, underserved workers were and how corporate elites were uh, trying to uh, deprive working class Americans of their livelihoods. Um, people do try to co-op legitimate concerns and, and uh, valid, valid spheres of politics. And I don't think that necessarily discredits those spheres of politics. Uh, Asita, you refer in your piece uh, to, I think it was a tweet from um, another uh, American cultural political writer, Wesley Yang, who talks about the need for a successor ideology. Is it conceivable that 2020 marks the moment when we recognize that need? And is the successor ideology to 
liberalism essentially um, a, a full-blown critique of, of capitalism? Well, from Yang's perspective, successor ideology is the name that he's basically given to progressive identity politics. He sees it as fundamentally at odds with liberalism um, in ways that I don't. Um, but I, I don't know that we need to develop a different ideology so much as we need to apply um, sort of the best of liberalism and, and also take seriously the concerns of people with progressive identity politics. We need to apply all of that to our existing political debates, our existing policy debates in new and more ambitious ways. It's not so much that we need a different philosophical starting point, but I think that if we took some of the philosophical premises of liberalism seriously and also took um, the racial history of this country seriously and, and other things that people with progressive identity politics think we should take seriously, if, if we combined all of that, I think that we would have a, a better way of looking at certain problems that have been uh, under-addressed and, and left uh, to fester within conventional politics, the things that make the American uh, ladder to progress really a drain pipe, as I say in my piece. I think that we need a, a more ambitious um, reading of our problems. An ambitious reading of our problems. I couldn't agree more, and I'm sure everyone listening would agree. Uh, to do that, for that ambitious reading, what should we be reading, Osita? As you're, you're stuck in Baltimore, I'm stuck in Berkeley. Uh, everybody's stuck somewhere these days. Uh, w w suggest a couple of books that might help us realize that uh, ambition. Well, I think uh, one of the big books that I'd probably recommend is The Color of Law. Uh, by Richard Rothstein. Uh, it's a book about segregation uh, in American society, particularly urban segregation and uh, the role it continues to play in our urban landscapes. It's a book I haven't really finished yet, but I think it speaks to the structural nature of a lot of these problems that we're talking about. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.